Okay, uh, let's go ahead and get started with prayer. Lord, we love you. We thank you for thy word. And I ask that you give us the strength to continue tonight. And I ask, Lord, as always, that you will open our understanding, that we might comprehend the scriptures. The scriptures, Lord, are written by you. You are the word. And by your Holy Spirit, which gave us the scriptures, Lord, we ask you to illuminate our own understanding. We cannot understand it without you, without an unction from the Holy Spirit. And I ask that you bless everyone who has come, everyone who is watching online, uh, with the word of God, that they might grow in you to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, welcome to thy word, and we are in Matthew part 16. It's good to have you all here. Um, without you, I'd be all alone. Um, we are, we are, and like as I said, we're on the 16th part of the Gospel according to Matthew, and we've had had a rather long parentheses um, in our study of Matthew, studying the offices of the uh, fivefold ministry of the church that are founded upon the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we also discussed the two other offices which were also part of his ministry, being the king and the high priest. And we will continue to point uh, these offices out as we continue, continue in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to try to make that our framework, um, the, the seven-fold ministry that's actually in the church. There's a five-fold ministry as far as men who are called by God, given as gifts to the church, and then there is the ministry of the king and the high priest and we are a royal priesthood so everyone who is in the kingdom is a priest it is a kingdom of priests you understand so if you are in the kingdom you are a priest and not just a priest but a royal priest and we will remember that the high priest of jesus christ was not based on the high priest of leviticus but on melchizedek who was a king and a priest and that is what our priesthood is built upon it's built upon the priesthood of melchizedek through the lord jesus christ we are a royal priesthood we have discussed that and we're going to continue to take a look at that and uh, we then discuss the gifts of the spirit many of which are manifested in the ministry of jesus christ and we listed them in three divisions which were the revelation gifts and the revelation gifts are the word of knowledge, the word of wisdom, and the discerning of spirits. We have the power gifts, and those are the gift of faith, gifts of healing, and the working of miracles, and the inspiration gifts, which are divers kinds of tongues, the interpretation of tongues, and prophecy. We spoke about the fact that all of these ministries and gifts are part of the church today, as the body of Christ and we will continue in Matthew with a view of these gifts but before I go on I want to say once again we are not we don't teach about the gifts and pray for the gifts to come the gifts are already here if you receive the Holy Spirit the gifts of God are within the spirit that you receive they are gifts of the Spirit of God so let us continue now where we left off several weeks ago now in Matthew chapter 8 beginning at verse 16 and I'll read to verse 17 and the Bible reads when evening had come they brought to him many who were demon-possessed and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick 
that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying he took he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses so he cast out devils and he healed the sick now I do not believe his authority to cast out devils was based in the gifts of the spirit but in the authority of who he is as the uh, the king of the coming kingdom but more importantly as the son of God there is no gift of casting out devils we don't see that in the Bible the gift uh, the, the the power the authority to cast out devils comes from who Jesus is and then who we are in him and one thing that we will see is that the demons knew precisely who Jesus was they recognized the true identity of Jesus even before his disciples did. And uh, as Luke records, and Luke is recording the same event here in Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 40. And the Bible reads, When the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And he, rebuking them, did not allow them to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ. It is an interesting observation that never in the Bible will you find a demon speaking out of a human being who speaks anything but the absolute truth. Everything they said was true about him. He was the Christ. He was the Son of God. Uh, what they said about Paul uh, the, the, as, as he was preaching the gospel, everything that this woman said uh, who followed him was true. These are the men of God, and they're teaching the way of salvation. What they said was true. And, um, and, and, and it's just an interesting thing. But the Lord rebuked them because it was not time for people to know who he was. The Bible says that he rebuking them did not allow them to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ. And we see later on in the ministry of Paul an account in Acts chapter 19, beginning at verse 11. And the Bible reads, Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, and that means that these were people who were from Jerusalem, but they were traveling abroad among the Gentiles. And it says, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exorcise you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. And there were seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know. They knew who Jesus was. And Paul I know. They knew who Paul was, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out that house naked and wounded. So the demons left when Jesus commanded them to leave because they knew who he was. They recognized his authority. They left uh, when Paul cast them out for the same reason, they recognized his authority as a member of the body of Christ. As we mentioned, Jesus was both king and high priest, and we are a royal priesthood. We are 
ruling priests in a priestly kingdom. That means we have authority in Jesus Christ, and we have authority to use the name of Jesus Christ. As the sons of Siva learned, and they learned the hard way, the authority is not in using the name of Jesus as some kind of magic word. But it, the authority is in being part of the body of Christ. In other words, being in him and he in us. And when we're in him and he's in us, we can use his name with authority. And can I tell you that demons have to listen? That's right. And I want, I want, I'm just going to, this is not in my notes, but I just want to say this. Sometimes we get attacked, and we get attacked by the kingdom of darkness. And, and I was talking to someone today, the reason that the, the kingdom of darkness attacks you is because you're going the right way. Mm-hmm. You're going into places yeah. they don't want you to go into. Yeah. And, and sometimes we get overwhelmed to the point where, man, I just don't feel like I can carry on. But see, the secret is this. You have the authority to make them flee. The Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Why? We have the authority to make them flee. They are afraid that we will wake up one day and know exactly who we are in Jesus Christ. That's the devil's greatest fear. Um, So let's uh, continue in Matthew chapter 8, verse 18. And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he he gave a command to depart to the other side. Then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So we see here that Jesus is referring to himself. I'm going to take this off. Is that okay? For those of you who don't know, I'm a little bit heavy on the heavy side. Surprise! Praise God. (laughs) So we see here that Jesus is referring to himself by the title, the Son of Man. And Jesus has many titles. He is the Savior. He is the King. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. But the title he uses most often is the title, the Son of Man. In fact, he uses this title over 80 times in the Gospels. He calls himself the Son of Man. Man, And very often we will read through a passage like this and give it uh, very little thought. But Jesus called himself the Son of Man. And in doing so, it was not a small thing at all. It was a very large thing. It wasn't a small occurrence. Every Jew in that time would recognize the significance of that title in light of the Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah. For instance, the prophet Daniel spoke of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7, beginning at verse 13. Daniel wrote, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom kingdom the one which should not be destroyed. So Jesus identified himself as the one, the son of man of the book of Daniel. And the son of man is the one who would come and rule with an everlasting dominion 
or authority and an everlasting kingdom. In short, the king of kings over the kingdom of kingdoms for all eternity. And Isaiah also prophesied of him, uh, of him in Isaiah chapter 9, beginning at verse 6 through 7. And this is a passage that we are usually very familiar with. We quote it very often. And uh, uh, Isaiah wrote, for unto us and to who? And the question is, uh, to us, to who? And, and the answer is to mankind. Unto us a child is born. Unto us, mankind again. To us. A son is given. This is the son of man. And the government will be upon his shoulder. Exactly what Daniel said. Isaiah had already prophesied. The government would be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Do we understand who Jesus is? When, if any man were to say that these are the titles that I possess, he would be calling himself what? God. Yahweh. And Jesus of the New Testament is Yahweh of the Old Testament. Amen. I want to make that very clear. That's who this one is who came wrapped in flesh as the Son of Man. He is the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time for, forward even forever. So the son of man would be one who was given a kingdom whose dominion would never end, whose rule would never end. And this is what the Jews were looking for. It's what they're looking for today as well. And here... Isaiah identifies the Son of Man as a child born of mankind, but who is much more than a Son of Man. He has other titles, magnificent titles. He is Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Isaiah wrote again in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and he gives uh, this one who will be born yet another title where he wrote, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So another title of this one, this son, this son, this son of man, is Emmanuel, which in Hebrew is God with us. In declaring himself to be the son of man, Jesus claimed all of the other Titles, yet the title he used most often was the Son of Man. And I believe that there's a reason for that. You see, the nation of Israel were looking for a king, a ruler of an everlasting kingdom coming in power and glory. And we need to recognize this as we read through the Gospels because this was their mindset. And it wasn't only the mindset of the nation of Israel, but it was also the mindset of the disciples of Jesus Christ. They thought that while they're following him, he's going to overthrow Rome. He's going to set up this kingdom and he's going to rule forever. That's what they believed was going on. And uh, they were wrong. They did not know why he called them and what he had called them to do. They were looking for the anointed one, the Mashiach who would reign forever. But they saw only part of the prophecy of the one who would come. Isaiah had another prophecy that had to be fulfilled 
it was of him, the son of man. But it was not of glory and it was not of power. It was one of weakness and shame, brokenness and suffering, humiliation and rejection. And we find that in, the, in Isaiah chapter 52 uh, beginning at verse 13 and then going into Isaiah chapter 53 where Isaiah wrote, Behold, my servant. Now, he's the king. He's the high priest. He's the anointed one. He is the mighty God. He is the everlasting father. But here, the Lord calls him my servant. So there was going to be a servant who came and there was going to be a king who came. And the problem was that Israel couldn't differentiate. They, they didn't realize that this was one and the same who would come as the servant. And not just the servant, but the suffering servant. My servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him there is no beauty that we should desire him he is despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and we hid as it were our faces from him he was despised and we did not esteem him so isaiah paints the picture of a man one who is in the race of the sons of men one who is exalted and extolled very high but is then marred more than any other man his form marred more than the sons of man which means he was disfigured in appearance barely recognizable as a human being and this is the portrait of our lord jesus on the cross one who is despised and rejected a man of sorrows and grief isaiah continues surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like, have, like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we have the Son of Man who's coming in glory and power. And then we have this suffering servant who's coming in rejection. He came unto his own and his own received him not. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was disfigured, not even to the point where you could recognize that that's a human being. He did not come when he came the first time for glory. He came the first time to be the suffering servant. As we read earlier in Matthew chapter 8, beginning at verse 16 through 17, when evening had come, they brought to him many who were, who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah. Now they're saying, this scripture that I just read to you, 
Isaiah 52 and 53 is about this one who came. Spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. So the nation of Israel was looking for the great king, the Messiah, to rule an everlasting kingdom with everlasting dominion. But Jesus came as the son of man, the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53. He said of himself using this title in Matthew uh, 20 and verse 28 when the mother of James and John asked him to give her two sons special places in his coming kingdom and we see here that even the ones following Jesus even James and John and John was probably closer to Jesus than all of the 12 apostles they were still believing that this path that they're following this one that they're following that this path that they were on was leading to glory and they're going to get a piece of that glory. I want to be on the right side of Jesus, and I want my brother to be on the left side of Jesus, and we're going to send mom to see if we can make it happen. But they didn't realize that they would be going to the way of the cross, that Jesus was not going to glory except by the cross and through the cross. Can I tell you that many people are serving the Lord today, and they don't know where they're going. So many people think that this is something that it's not. This is the way of the cross. Jesus has called us to follow him, and day by day we follow him. And there will probably not be much glory on this earth. There's going to be a way of the cross. But when we make it to the cross and through the cross and by the cross, there is going to be glory. And Jesus answered, James, John, and their mother, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whosoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. Jesus was the servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, Jesus was first. Let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man, there's that title again, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You know what our, our goal should be on this earth? To give our lives, not as a ransom for, for many, but because we owe the one who gave his life. We are debtors. Paul said, I am a debtor. I'm a debtor to the Jews. I'm a debtor to the Gentiles. I'm a debtor. Why? Because... You were here when I arrived, and I was saved because you were here. So I'm a debtor to the church first. And then I'm a debtor to my Lord, and I'm here to serve. I'm here to lay down my life as the Lord laid down his life. And the only reward I may ever see will be on the other side, not on this side. He's our great reward. You know, he's our great reward. If you have your reward now, you're not going to have it later. That's what Jesus said. And here in Matthew, when the scribe wanted to follow him, perhaps the scribe recognized him for who he was. And with that, believed that following Jesus would lead to a place of glory here on earth. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man, there's that title again, has nowhere to lay his head. We are following him. And the road we on will lead to glory. In fact, can I tell you that it is unimaginable glory 
you're sharing His glory. He is going to glorify His church and cause you to reign and rule with Him. We are going to be something that our mortal minds cannot even comprehend. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it even entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. Amen. Amen. We are following Him. We may never have glory and comfort here, but where He is, we will be one day. And we will be sharing His glory, reigning and ruling in His kingdom. Matthew 8, let's continue in Matthew 8, verse 21 to 22. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, Jesus never begged or pleaded with any man to follow after him. He did not do that. He did not say, I'm going to make it easier. Obviously, I'm not getting enough followers. I had, uh, I had Brother Peter do a count of those who were following, and we were off by 25% last week. So this uh, time around, we're going to have donuts and coffee uh, in the vestibule, and we're going to allow them to bring the coffee into the church, and maybe that'll bring more people and get our numbers up. Jesus never did that. Why? He was going to the cross. And anybody who would follow him for that reason, they weren't going to go to the cross with him. He needed people who were disciples. God never called church members. And he never called us and sent us to bring in church members. He said, go and make disciples. And a disciple is someone who's going to go the way of the cross. So he never begged or pleaded. In fact, he was less than encouraging for many people who wanted to follow him. And in this particular case, the man said, let me first go and bury my father. It's unlikely that the disciple's father was even dead yet. This was a custom in the time where they were basically, they would wait and they would serve their father. And then when their father died, they would get the, the portion of their inheritance. And what he was saying was, let me continue to be my father's son, to work in his house, to do my duties that I have to my father. And then when he dies and I get my inheritance, I'll come and follow you. Okay? And Jesus said, no, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. That's not how this works. Jesus is saying here that when the Lord calls us, his call supersedes all other calls, all other contracts and obligations in our lives. Now, there is a principle in the Bible, once again, not in my notes, so if I flub up, you'll tell me later, but there is a principle in the Bible that the reason you are no longer under the law is because your flesh is married to the law. It's a strange principle, and we're going to walk through it when we're in the book of Romans. But the, what freed you from being under the law was that you died. When you came to the cross, you died. That old man, that old thing that you were, that fleshly nature died. And just as if I were to drop dead right now, my wife could marry another man. Don't get any ideas in that. 
But my wife couldn't marry another man. She is free from the obligation, the contract that we have. Okay? So I'm free from the law because I died to the law. We're no longer married. It's been annulled. It's been, well, not annulled. It's been, it's been by death. It says, until death do we part. Well, I parted the law when I died. Okay? And, and what Jesus is saying here is that when the Lord calls us, that call negates all other contracts that came before. All other obligations in our lives compared to the new calling. For instance, Peter and Andrew left their trade immediately. And James and John left their father in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 through 22. And I'm going to read it. And Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. They were working their trade. They, and then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately, I like that word, immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, in a boat with Zebedee, their father. They're with their father. They're working the trade that their father taught them their entire lives so that he can then give the business to them. That was the goal. I'm a, I'm a fisherman. My father was a fisherman before me. His father was probably a fisherman before him. And this is what we're going to do. This is what we do. This is what the sons of Zebedee do. And Jesus says... Follow me. He called them and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So his call supersedes all other calls, all other holds, and all earlier obligations. It does not mean that we neglect our families. It does not mean that we're no longer married. Although there are some stipulations in this. For instance, if you're a husband, if you are a woman and you come to Christ, he says, I can't dwell with you anymore because you're a Christian and he refuses to dwell with you, you are now free. That's what the Bible says, because this call supersedes the contract that you have with him. It is more important to follow Jesus than anything else. That's right. Jesus continued saying to the disciple, let the dead bury the dead. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 6, Paul tells us, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. You were dead and you were under the control of the devil. That's where we were when Jesus found us among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love, with which He loved of us, even when we were dead, and when He found us we were dead, in trespasses, made us alive with Christ. So we are alive by Him, by grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we were dead 
and the world is dead in trespasses and sins. And now we are made alive. So we are in the world, but we are no longer of the world. The world is the land of the dead. It's Egypt, the land of the dead. And we are alive in Him. And our responsibility is to the one who called us and who made us alive. Let the dead bury the dead. Let the worldly people mind the things of this world. That's what he's saying. Let those who are in the world worry about the things of the world. That doesn't mean if mom's not in church that you don't go to her funeral or that you don't give her a proper funeral. It means that nothing else takes first place. He's the first. And he's the last. And can I tell you, he's everything in between. I don't know if I've talked about this in my word before, but it's 7.07. I don't know how much time I've got. But Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end, which makes sense to us. But in the Hebrew alphabet, he is the Aleph Mim Tal. He is the first letter of the alphabet. He's the middle letter of the alphabet. He is the final letter of the alphabet. The Aleph Mim Tal. That's how they say Alpha and Omega. The interesting thing is Aleph Mim Tal spells the word Emet. And Emet is truth. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the Aleph Mim Tau. I am the life. He's everything from the beginning to the end and everything in between. Hallelujah. Matthew chapter 8. Let's continue. Verse 23 through 27. Now when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him and suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with the waves. But he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us. We are perishing. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now, in the framework that we're going to study, the book of Matthew, I want to point out the gifts of the Spirit in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see here Jesus operating as the perfect example to Christians in the gifts of the Spirit. We have the gift of faith, which commands with the faith of God himself, just as the word of knowledge is a small portion of God's own knowledge. And the word of wisdom is a small portion of God's own wisdom. So is the gift of faith a small portion of God's own faith, which commands with the faith of God himself and is therefore obeyed. We must remember that Jesus, though God, and he most certainly was, God manifest in flesh, but he came as the suffering servant. He did not come in full power and authority of God, but as God's servant, just as we are in the earth today. And he was the perfect example of the use of the gifts of the Spirit. He did not heal and work miracles and cast out devils as God on earth, but as the perfect Christian, as a man, a human being, anointed by God. And the church is his body. 
human beings anointed by God to finish the work of Jesus Christ. We are the anointed ones. That's who we are. That's who the church is. And we're the Kodashim, the, the holy ones, the sanctified ones, made holy by his presence. That's who we are. Uh, Matthew 8, 28 through 34. When he had come to the other side, to the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceeding, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, saying, what have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? Once again, they knew who he was. Have you come here to torment us before the time? There is a time coming and the devils, the demons, they know, they, they know it's coming. And they know that they can do nothing to stop it. Now, a good way off from them, there was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged him, saying, if you cast us out, and that word begged, is not the proper word. It's not really a begging. It's almost impudence. It's like somebody saying, you're violating my constitutional rights. It's a demand. It's encroaching, saying, we have the right to, I know you're, you're one of authority, but we have the right. That's really the word that's being used here, not begging. He said, if you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said to them, go. So when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine, and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. Then those who kept them fled, and they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. They didn't want him. You know what Jesus does? He says, you don't even know who you're talking to. I'll leave when I'm good and ready to leave. Is that what he did? He said, okay. Got on the boat and left. See, the Holy Spirit, the Lord, is like the dove. He's looking for a place to land. And if you don't want him, he'll leave. Now, swine were unclean animals under Jewish law. So one has to ask, why were there herds of swine here? I mean, there had to be a market for them. And the answer is they were being raised for food for the Romans and the other Gentiles in the area. And this was an unclean profession for any Jew. And what's interesting is that in the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus tells how the prodigal in, in abject poverty and at the point of starvation ends up being a caretaker for swine. And that is as low as anyone, any Jewish young man could go. And here we have this strange occurrence where the demons begged him and like I said, the word here for begged is not the cowarding word for begging, but is more of a demand for one's rights. And they said, let us go into the swine. Like the demons felt like they had a right to enter the swine. The swine were unclean. The whole business of raising them for food under the law of Moses was an unclean, filthy business. Now you can eat swine all you want. You're not under the law. You're dead to the law. But if you want to put that in your body and look like me, go ahead. <laughs> I put a lot of my in my body too. Amen. Love that sweet and sour pork. But and, and the demon. So 
So they, they were saying, we have a right to inhabit the swine. And once more, the Lord allowed them to go into the swine. Can I tell you that the demons have a claim? They have a claim. They have a legal claim to move in to an unclean, filthy lifestyle or area. It gives them a legal right. And I believe demonic possession, demonic influence, and demonic torment are real. They exist today. And the church must take authority of them when the need to do so arises. Having said that, I don't see a demon in absolutely everything and everybody. Every time a demon is cast out in the Bible where it actually describes what happened, the demon manifested first. And when the demon manifested, then Jesus dealt with that situation. And we see that again in the book of Acts, the demons manifest. We don't just say, oh, you're suffering from, you know, demonic obsession or, or, or whatever, you're, because you're depressed and therefore we're going to cast a devil out of you. That's not a biblical thing to do. In fact, it's, it's what I like to call... Uh, it, it's, it's, it's like what the devil said, if, if you're the son of God, command these stones to be made into bread. It was a temptation to use the power and authority that Jesus had in a way that was not the will of God. If God wants to cast out a demon in this church, he will cause that demon to manifest. But what I am saying is, if that demon does manifest in our service among our people, we must take authority. And deliver that one who has the demon because that's what Jesus did and that's what we must do. Amen? Amen. And uh, we have the authority to do so. Now many have tried to say that demons in the scriptures were mere euphemisms uh, for mental illness. You know, and we hear that, I'm wrestling with my demons. Well, I certainly hope not. Um, and if you are, there's a better way to, to, to deal with that. Um, it, but it, it is a euphemism for mental illness, and they're trying to say that that's what the Bible is talking about, and they were not actual creatures. But let me tell you, they are actual creatures. Oh, yes, and I do not see uh, how the mental illness of these men left them, then entered the bodies of the swine and caused them to run and commit suicide. Now, that's a very strong mental illness if it can leap off of people into swine and then cause them to do these kinds of things. So these are real entities and can I tell you, they are, that those very demons who were cast out are still in the world today. They probably remember this. Matthew chapter 9. Let's go ahead to chapter 9 and verse 1. We're going to read all the way through verse 8 and continue here. So he got into a boat. And once again, they said, we don't want you in our city. Okay. He got into a boat, crossed over and came to his own city. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, what is that? Word of knowledge. Word of knowledge. Or it could be discerning of spirits, depending on what we're seeing with the translation of these thoughts. But yes, this is a gift of the spirit. He said... Uh, the, uh, they said within themselves this man blasphemes but Jesus knowing their thoughts said 
Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man, there's that title again, has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. The most important issue in the life of the paralytic was not his health. The most important issue was the state of his spiritual life. And can I ask you, what good is healing without salvation? What good is deliverance from evil spirits without salvation? The Lord delivers you from demons today, but you're not saved. Guess what's going to happen tomorrow? They're coming back. So very little good at all without salvation. And the greatest miracle that day in the life of the paralytic was not the healing of his body. It was the forgiveness of his sins. The son, and I mean, it truly was. Because can I tell you that Israel, as a, as a nation, had not really ever achieved forgiveness of sins. They only pushed their sins ahead a year. They would have a big sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. They would atone for their sins with the blood of animals. But it wasn't enough. The blood of animals could not remit the sins. It only pushed them away a year. In fact, it was a remembrance of their sin. But now Jesus is saying, your sins are forgiven. Yeah. Yeah. Woo! Hallelujah. And that was the greatest miracle that happened that day. Amen. Praise the Lord. The Son of Man did not take upon himself our infirmities and our sicknesses only. But the most important thing he did was he took upon himself our iniquities, our sins. Amen. Now, what gifts of the Spirit do we see in operation here in this account? Jesus knew what they were saying in their hearts, and that's the word of knowledge and perhaps the discerning of spirits. He spoke to the man and told him to walk, and the man got up and walked. This is gifts of healing and maybe mingled, mingled with the gift of faith, speaking with a portion of God's own faith to the situation commanding it to be changed or removed so he's using a gift of the spirit or two here and it's now 721 i'm going to go ahead and finish with matthew 9 verses 9 through 13 as jesus passed on from there he saw a man named matthew now what's the name of this book we're studying here this is the gospel according to matthew and I like how Matthew is very just straightforward with this. He just tells it the way it was. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he said, but Lord, it's tax season. And I got a bunch of clients waiting for me. I got my boss, Zacchaeus, you know him, little guy. He's, he's a real hard you know, nut to crack, and, and, and I can't just go right now, but... If you wait till after tax service, uh, season is done, I, I will follow you. No, but no, that's not what Matthew did. He could have done that. So he arose and followed him. 
put down his pen. He probably had a Roman guard because he was hated, man. They would love to kill him. The zealots would love to kill him. And it's beautiful because he's about to go join the apostles. And among the apostles is a zealot. I mean, what a strange mix. What a strange mix is here tonight, right? Praise the Lord. I don't think many of us would be friends in the world. Right? Inmate Dixon. Okay. Correctional Officer Taylor. Right? But see, God does wonderful things. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house and behold, many tax collectors uh, and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. He's in Matthew's house. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, I see a lot of religious people who do that today. They're just all, you know, praise God, for saved by grace. The grace of God be with you, or else you better have the grace of God or you're going to hell. I see people like this, and, and these guys came in, and they're pompous, and they're pious, and they're following the law, and they're following all the rules, and they look the part, and they look at Jesus, who's sitting with tax collectors and sinners. <sighs> I've seen Christians like that. Can I tell you a little secret? They're not Christians. When Jesus heard that, why? Because being a Christian is following Jesus, and Jesus was sitting with the tax collectors and the sinners. Okay, that's what he was doing. Those, and Jesus, uh, when Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Thank God. Because otherwise, there'd be a whole bunch of saved Pharisees all looking down their long nose at me, and I'd never be allowed to come into the house of God. Man, I'm so glad Jesus is who Jesus is. Once again, as did Peter and Matthew, James and John, Matthew left immediately the things of his life, this world, and followed after Jesus. And in closing, I want to talk a little bit about Matthew. And we mentioned this earlier uh, when we talked about Matthew and when we talked about the, um, the centurion. And I, I mentioned, just a Ricky Taylorism, that I lean toward the understanding that that centurion who amazed the Lord Jesus with his faith was almost certainly Cornelius of Acts chapter 10. That was the prophecy given, is that the Gentiles would come and they would sit down with Abraham at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And that's what I lean toward. I, of course, I can't make a doctrine out of that. But I also think that Matthew was spoken about by Jesus as well. And we find that in Luke chapter 18, beginning at verse 9. And we talked about this before, and I want to read it one more time before we close here. How much time do we have? Hallelujah, we're there. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. What was Matthew? The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. 
extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. I just reached over to the right guy, didn't I? The, the tax collector. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And let me close this with this thought. Not a doctrine, just a pattern. Was this call of Matthew by Jesus an exaltation of Matthew? Because Jesus had seen him in the spirit humble himself in prayer in the temple. We may never know, but it does seem to fit the narrative. And having said that, isn't the Bible an interesting book? And as we see, Jesus eats with the tax collectors and sinners here in Matthew chapter 9. The self-righteousness of the Pharisees is on full display. Because in their minds, they were so much better than sinners and tax collectors because of all their works. And after that dinner, I'm sure many tax collectors and sinners left justified. Their sins forgiven, their lives changed. But the Pharisees left exactly the way they came. Can I tell you that the greatest barrier to receiving something from God is pride. And spiritual pride manifests as self-righteousness. It's the idea that I'm holier than thou. I know enough. Do you know what really bugs Brother Ricky Taylor? I've been in this thing my whole life. And I've seen people who have... They are the same level in Jesus Christ as they were 30, 40 years ago. Because they believe they already know. And that pride, that self-righteousness keeps them from learning more about Jesus Christ. Let's never, never be that way. Let's humble ourselves when he comes into our midst and when we open up the word of God and be teachable in the name of Jesus. Lord, we love you. We thank you for that word. We thank you for all that you're doing among your people. And I pray that you will continue to move in the midst, that you will use us, that you will flow through us in the gifts of the Spirit and in power and authority as the body of Christ, a royal priesthood, O oh God, the temple, the dwelling place of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth whose foundation is laid on the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of Soul and spirit of joints and marrow Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart I